You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you are a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I am one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship, and uh, it is, as always, my pleasure and honor to get to be with you guys as we open up God's Word together as a little family. Uh, if you are new, there are a couple of things that, honestly, right off the cuff, like I would want you to know about our church. So we, uh, I think it's important to note that all of our Midtown family of churches, we're all kind of built around uh, some, some core values, three primary core values or convictions about who and what we believe the church to be. Those three things, and you'll hear them all the time, you heard Andrew mention them just a few minutes ago, are Jesus-centeredness, family, and mission. Those are our core values and convictions about the church. We believe that when we open the Bible, what immediately jumps off the page to us about the church is that it's this interconnected community of people who are built on the work of Jesus, who join in his kingdom mission in the world. And so we try to encapsulate that vision in those three things. It's what we say we're all about. It's why we say we exist as a church, to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. And specifically, when we say words like Jesus-centered, what we mean is that we are built from top to bottom on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is what we are all about. Some of the way that I love to say it is that we are a band with essentially one song, and that song is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He is what we are about. We believe that he is the hope of the world. We believe that he is the light of life, that he is God incarnate, that he is where salvation is found, that he is the true desire of every human heart, and that what he offers is better than everything else the world would have to offer us. To put it really simply, we believe that Jesus changes everything. I mean, we, we kind of put that on our business card. We believe that Jesus changes absolutely everything. He changes how we see ourselves, how we see and understand the world around us and our place in it. He changes our values and our priorities. He changes our relationships and virtually everything in between. We think since the tomb is empty, essentially then nothing else can be left the same. And that has been the testimony of the church throughout its entire history. And it's actually the very thing that Paul is going to remind the Philippians and subsequently us of in our text today. Uh, Our passage today is ripe with good news, with what Christians call the gospel. Uh, And honestly, my prayer this entire week uh, has been that each of us would, in a lot of respects, hear it fresh this morning whether that be for the first time or the thousandth time, that we would hear this good news in this text and be spurred on to faith and joy and hope and love and all the things that God wants to build in us. Because what we're gonna cover today is honestly, it is the absolute bedrock of who we are as a people. So let's get in. We're gonna start in verse one and we're gonna read a little bit. We'll talk a little bit. We'll read a little bit, talk a little bit all the way through the end. So picking up in Philippians chapter three, verse one, this is what it reads. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he's about to tell them something that they have heard him say before. But Paul is like, listen, don't worry about this being stuff that you already know because this is the good stuff and it is good for you to hear it. What he's about to write is something that he doesn't get tired of saying and he hopes that they never get tired of hearing. And to be quite honest, I hope that I hope and pray that that is true of me and you as well. That this is stuff that we never get tired of sharing and we never get tired of hearing preached. Let's look at verse two. Verse two, he, he goes, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. All right, so let's stop right there. Uh, because I don't know about you, but that is not exactly how I expected Paul to follow up that first sentence. He just called some people some names and used the word circumcision. And now I'm just uncomfortable. So I feel like we ought to talk about it at least, at least a little bit. So let me, let me tell you what's going on here, all right? Uh, in the Old Testament, God made a covenant which was a special promise-style agreement with the Israelites, also known as the Jews, that he would be their God and they would be his people. The Jewish people would be his special selected group of people out of all the people of the earth to show off God's truth and his character to the world around them. And so God gave them the law and all kinds of other ways of exemplifying their set-apartness, so to speak. And circumcision was a part of this. It was a part of the way that they would sort of reveal their set-apartness from the rest of the world. It was given to them as a physical sign or a mark of this special relationship that they had between themselves and God. And I know that that might sound strange to our modern years, but this actually was not that much of an unheard of practice in the ancient Near East. Uh, and so for someone to not be circumcised or to refuse circumcision was essentially an indicator that they weren't or didn't want to be a part of God's covenant people, which for most Jews who are expecting a Messiah to come strictly for the Jews wasn't that big of a deal. But then something really unique happened. Then the Holy Spirit started saving a bunch of Gentiles. The Holy Spirit was being poured out on all of these non-Jews, which Gentile is just the New Testament way of talking about non-Jews. God was clearly bringing these non-Jews into his people, but the issue was, is they weren't circumcised. They weren't that, that Jewish. And this quickly became an issue that sort of plagued the early church. Like you see it a lot in the book of Acts and in many of Paul's letters, attempting to answer the question, just how Jewish does a person have to be in order to be a Christian? Some Jew, all Jew, no Jew. How Jewish does a person have to be? And there was this sect in the early church that said, listen, you gotta be all Jewish. If you're gonna be a part of God's people, you gotta be all the way Jewish. They were eventually called the Judaizers and they were a group that said, look, if you wanna follow Jesus, that is all well and good. But if you really want God to accept you, then what you have to do is you have to become Jewish. If you're really serious about your faith and you really wanna please God, you really wanna please him, then you have to do it all. You have to keep all of his laws. You have to keep Torah and everything there, all the religious laws, including all the dietary and ceremonial and all the other laws. And obviously you have to be circumcised because that's what righteous people do. You have to take this sign onto yourself as well. So uh, I remember when I was fresh out of college and I was looking for work uh, and I was kind of getting my resume ready for potential employers. And I quickly realized my resume stinks. Like it's like really, really bad. Like I had no real experience to boast about. My best job was basically working retail. And I can remember looking at it really depressed thinking I would never hire me. Like not 
Not in a million years would I hire me. I've got to figure out some way to make this look better. And I need to figure out some way to do that without lying because I don't want to lie. But how do I do that? How do I make being a cashier who just like rang up people's clothes and exchanged money look better than it actually is? So I got creative. Instead of putting cashier down, cashier, no, 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 no. What I did was I supervised financial transactions with the public. That's what my job was. Answer the phone, not so fast. That's a communication specialist, if I may. Point somebody to the bathroom, <laughs> that is solving uh, customer problems uh, and ensuring health and safety protocols, right? Like that's, that's what's really taking place. And after I got a little creative with the enhancements, I felt a little bit better about myself, I won't lie, right? This is essentially, even though that's silly, this is essentially the message of the Judaizers. That they're saying, hey, you gotta look better. You gotta boost that resume, so to speak. If you wanna follow Jesus, fine, but if you want God to accept you, you gotta have a better looking resume than the one that you currently have. And Paul says, listen, Philippians, like I've told you before, do not listen to people who share this message. He calls them dogs, which I know to us sounds offensive, but really that was just a cultural way of indicating that although these people thought they were God's children, they really were on the outside looking in because these folks are not actually believing the gospel. These people are trusting that what makes them okay with God and others is their heritage and their actions, what Paul here refers to as the flesh. And Paul's entire message, in fact, the Bible's entire message is that this is not how God's salvation works. This is not how Jesus's salvation works. Like he says here, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What he means is that the work of Jesus is what Christians place their confidence in. What the Christian boasts in and celebrates in is what Jesus has done for us, not what we have or have not done ourselves, not our accomplishments, not our ethnicity, not our nationality or whatever crowds we belong to, but Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, that being said, let's take a minute here and connect some dots to us today. All right, because uh, I don't imagine that any of, any of us are out there thinking or saying, "Hey, listen, let me let me tell you something particularly noteworthy and important about me. I'm circumcised. Impressive, I know. No, that'd be, make for really really awkward conversation. I doubt that's what any of us brag about. I mean, maybe you do, and that's a little bit weird, but whatever. Like maybe that's you, but no, I don't think that's what we actually boast in. In fact. I think part of what makes this text somewhat tricky for us isn't just that we don't play this game like the Judaizers played this game, but we also don't necessarily play it like anybody else for that matter either. We don't have some sort of universal or cultural standard of righteousness that makes us feel confident in ourselves and what we're doing. Instead, what we have is we all have our own little subcultures and individualized ideas about the things that we think make us right and good. Now, obviously, like, there's some easy ones that we could pick on. Perhaps the easiest one to pick on would be ideological alignment. Like, this is a really common one in our culture. It's honestly probably the most glaring example. Our culture is obsessed with this, that who you vote for, we're told, in effect, says something about you. It becomes this demarcation of whether or not you're on the right or the wrong side of history, whether you're one of the good guys or one of the bad guys. 
So being an ally or being woke or being a patriot or whatever your social justice community of choice is becomes this badge of honor that we wear that testifies to our own personal goodness. It's an item on our resume. And that's often an overused and easy example, but like I said, we play this game in a lot of different ways. You'll hear it in phrases like, I mean, I'm not perfect or anything, but at least I'm not blank. At least I'm not like so-and-so. And for some of us, that might look, look really religious like it does in this text, but it doesn't have to. It can look like any number of things. It could be, listen, I know I'm not perfect, but I am successful. I am successful. I started at the bottom and now I'm all the way here, like the song goes. I've climbed the ladder. I've made something of my life. My family is taken care of. We have a nice house and better cars and my kids aren't wiling out. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I do make sure we eat organic and recycle and take care of what we need to take care of and limit screen time. I mean, I'm a good parent. I'm a good husband. I'm a good wife. We give to charity. We don't waste money. I don't get angry with my children. You're a liar, but whatever. <laughs> Much like the Judaizers, though, we can play it in with things like our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, or the groups that we belong to, thinking things like, my people aren't like those people. We don't do what they do. And God might love all people, but he kind of prefers my people. I'm not perfect, but I'm educated. There are letters by my name. I'm well-liked and I'm well-respected by the right people. Bare minimum, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not Hitler. So I got that going for me. Perhaps the easiest way to discern this is to, look in, uh, is to ask ourselves the question or to look at whose or what sins do you tend to have a lot of patience and a lot of grace for? And whose do you absolutely not? Which ones can you absolutely not stand and get incredibly frustrated over? Listen, I'm not saying that all of that is necessarily wrong. In fact, some of those examples are very moral. The issue is not about whether or not these things are moral or immoral. That's not the issue. The issue is when either externally or just in the world of our minds, we believe that these things say something definitive enough about our goodness to give us this sense of confidence before God and others. The point being, we are all prone in our own unique little ways to essentially build up these little resumes that sell our own personal goodness. And I love how Paul responds to this idea. Let's pick back up in verse four. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in, in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. When it comes to the specific things that the Judaizers valued, Paul is saying, if we were to compare resumes, okay, for what it's worth, mine is better than yours. It's better than yours. Hands down, I check more boxes on my heritage, my obedience, my observance, and my zeal than you could ever hope to. And then he just rattles them off. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. He's saying that when it comes to circumcision, my family did it by the book. We weren't late to the game from the jump. We did this the way we were supposed to. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What, what, uh, what this kind of points us to is that ancestry and all that went with it was a big deal in the ancient world. And honestly, it still is in some 
societies and pockets of society today. Jews who could trace their lineage back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and especially those who knew which of Jacob's 12 sons they were descended from, they were people who could understandably and justifiably be proud of their heritage. And Paul is showing that as far as his heritage is concerned, his heritage is as good as it gets. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. All of this was his way of saying that he was zealous for his faith. He was about his faith. The Pharisees were known for taking God's law the most seriously. They built laws on top of the law to make sure that they were keeping everything that the law required. And that little tidbit about being a persecutor of the church, like that might sound strange to you as like a reason he gives for confidence in the flesh. But the point he's making is that his Phariseeism wasn't just some run-of-the-mill Phariseeism. He was about that life. He was serious regarding his Torah observance and fidelity to the little codifications of the law their sect adhered to. In Paul's day, this would have been an unbeatable resume. It does not get better than this. But look at what he says about it all. Verse seven, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So this is accounting language, right? gains and losses. With accounting, we're talking about balance sheets. You want your gains columns to outweigh your losses column. And Paul is saying, listen, I used to play that game. I used to play that game. I used to judge my resume on the exact same criteria and put all of these things in my gain column. And then Jesus found me and it flipped my world upside down. I realized that my math was all wrong. My math was all wrong. And I moved all my gains to my losses because I realized what I realized what I considered my assets were actually my liabilities. Everything that I thought was earning me salvation, I realized was actually moving me further and further away from it. Now that I know Jesus, he's flipped the script on how I think about the world in the absolute best way possible. Verse eight, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That Greek word for surpassing means superior or higher or supreme. What is better in Paul's mind than not just those things that he could credit to his name, but all things is knowing Jesus. He goes on to say it even more strongly, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things, which he literally did for what it's worth. He was on the fast track to success. He was going to be somebody in the Jewish world and he gave it all up to be a wandering tent-making evangelist who spent his life in and out of prison to tell the people about this Messiah, Jesus. And that word for rubbish here can be translated garbage. It's actually the word skubalon in Greek, which honestly, it's as close to an expletive as we get in scripture. It more literally means excrement or dung. It's a vulgar word. And I honestly, I can't really say the English equivalent without kind of getting fired. So I won't, I won't do that for you. But this is how extreme Paul feels towards even the most admirable of human privileges and accomplishments the degrees hanging on his shelf, his accomplishments as a Jewish Pharisee, his social status, net worth, family of origin, and everything else compared to knowing Jesus. He says, all of that, all of that is crap. And losing it all to gain Jesus, he's got two words 
worth it. Absolutely worth it. I would trade it all a thousand times over if it meant that I gain Jesus. Now, let me press this into us for just a moment, okay? Would you and I be able to say the same thing? Would you and I be able to say the same thing? Is gaining Christ that worth it to you? Such that you trade anything in your life, any achievement, any status, any privilege, any success, any relationship, any love, any item on your own personal resume, whatever it may be, in order to gain him. So at least once a year, uh, our family of church's pastors get together and we ask, hey, what, what do our churches need right now? Like, what, what do we need to hear? What do we need to preach on? Like, what, where are we at? And the last time we all got together and did that, we almost all universally said, man, I feel like we need to talk about fondness for God. We had this sense that throughout the past year, a lot of us, especially those of us with little motivation to seek God and fight sin, that we were struggling just to simply love and value Jesus, to be able from a deep place within us to say these things with Paul. We realized that we all have things that we love and that we enjoy having in our lives, right? Things that give us feelings of gladness and joy when we engage with them. Things that we would say have some surpassing worth in our lives. We love our families and we love our football and we love the lake and we love sex. And sometimes we love our jobs and good food and WandaVision and that new Mighty Ducks thing on Disney Plus. You know, in fact, we just all really love Disney Plus. Things that we would gladly trade other things to get. But often what we realize is that Jesus doesn't always make this list, right? He doesn't always make this list. It's why for some of us, when we're challenged or we're called to repent from sin, like we don't see it as a call to deeper joy and richer joy in Christ, but as someone pressuring us or judging us or trying to take something good away from us. It's why for some of us, the thought of not taking the promotion that would take us away from a community of people who push us to Jesus sounds like crazy talk. That's why it sounds like crazy talk. It's why all the calls we make to abide in Jesus through his word and prayer for some of us just sounds like white noise or a guilt trip. It's why that mental debate uh, every Sunday about attending a gathering feels to some of us like you're having to choose between Sunday being a flexible, uh, flexible joy or a dutiful chore. It's why some of us continue to do things that we know are sinful simply because what they offer seems to us to be more valuable, at least in the moment, than Jesus and his way. And it's because surpassing worth isn't something that we just apply to Jesus by default. Some worth, sure, but trade everything else for worth? Well, now hang on a minute. And it begs the question for us, how can Paul say this? How can Paul take this perspective? What does he know? What is it about Jesus that convinces him so thoroughly that Jesus is better than absolutely everything else? Well, he actually shows us in the next verses. Let's pick back up. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul, the first thing Paul understands about Jesus and sees in Jesus is that Jesus offers the, us the security of his righteousness. He offers us the security of his righteousness. When you become a follower of Jesus, you receive a righteousness greater than your own. You get swallowed up in the grace and righteousness of Christ. Christ, who lived the life free of sin that you have not lived and died the death for sin that you deserved to essentially swap places with us, to exchange all of your junk, all of your sinfulness for his righteousness. This is what gets credited to you in Jesus. I think baptism is a beautiful picture of this. In baptism, we get submerged and enveloped into the waters of Jesus's grace such that who and what you were before is swallowed up by who and what Jesus is in you and all around you. And it is not a righteousness that you get based on anything that you do, but what the text says, it's a righteousness that you receive based on faith. And we sometimes get the idea of faith sort of twisted with belief as though faith and belief were the same thing. And just for the record, I just wanna clear that up. They are not the same thing. They are certainly related and belief is a part of faith, but they aren't synonyms. One guy I heard talk about it say that faith is belief plus loyalty. And I kind of like that. But what the Bible calls faith is way more like what we would call trust. A classic way that I've heard preachers illustrate this distinction is that if you were to take a chair, say one of the ones that you're sitting in right now, belief is to look at that chair and say, that is something that I could sit in. That is something that someone could sit in. Faith is actually sitting in it. Faith is actually trusting it to do its job and support the weight of your body. And so when we're talking about faith in Christ, it's not just that I believe that Jesus was real and I believe that he was who he said, it, said he was. It's that it is that, but it's also I believe that and I am resting the full weight of my life, the full weight of my existence, my day-to-day -day goings and comings out of that reality. I'm done with keeping my own record of righteousness. I'm done with trying to be good enough on my own or to look smart enough. I'm done trying to prove myself and add notches to my belt. I'm done done boasting about my own goodness, and I am resting in his goodness on my behalf. You see, some of us have a Christianity that is more about what we do than what Jesus has done. Can I just put that out there for you? Where you believe that God more or less loves you based on how well you've performed that week or how well you haven't performed. You come to life group with your list of all the ways that you haven't been a quote-unquote good Christian your anti-resume, if I may. And what does that even mean, good Christian? What is that? A good Christian is a Christian that isn't finding themselves in their own goodness, but finds themselves in the goodness of Christ. I mean, just for the record, can you imagine the amount of pressure that Paul likely lived in having to keep up his resume before he knew Jesus? Can you imagine what his life was like before that? Some of you can because you're living in it right now. You're constantly manicuring your appearance and your speech and your behavior to fit the right mold, to look the right part, scrutinizing every single action you take, every thought you have, every place you go and person you're seen with. And you're trying so hard to prove yourself. You're trying so hard to prove yourself, to show your worth. And the reality of it is, is it's killing you. It's crushing you 
that pressure that you live in day to day. And what Paul is saying here is, I have found something better. I have found something that doesn't depend on me and what I do. I have found joy and freedom and security because my worth and my value and my salvation don't rest on me. They don't rest on me. They rest on him. And you need to hear me. Your best resume can't do this. Your best resume cannot save you. It cannot save you. That thing that you boast about, that you want people to know about you, that you hope God sees about you, can't do this because there's always more to do. There's always something to keep up and you can never fail. You cannot let anything compromise. You can't have a chink in your armor. You gotta keep it up and it's crushing. Your paltry, creatively enhanced resume is not going to save you. It's not No, you need something better than that. And the good news is that in Christ, you have it. The good news in Christ is that you have it. And make no mistake, we are saved by good works. We are. We are just not saved by our own. We are saved by Jesus's. And the good news is that you can be found in his good works. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but some of us are still living with a shame-based view of ourselves. We are still looking at our own resumes and we are embarrassed by what we see there. And a part of what I need you to hear me say today is that old stuff is not true about you anymore. That old stuff is not true about you anymore. Some of you are still believing that you are something that God says you are not. If you are in Christ, You are who God says you are. You are who God says you are, and he calls you righteous. He calls you beloved. He calls you son and daughter. And there is nothing that you can do to add or take away from what he has already secured for you. And so some of you need to stop trying. And to be honest, in my opinion, that would be good enough, right? Like that alone shows the surpassing worth of Jesus. Like if it were me, I would say, hey, that is good enough, but it doesn't end there. The surpassing value of Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 10, he goes on, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Jesus not only offers us the security of his righteousness, but he also offers us the power of his resurrection. That the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now alive and at work in those who are called by his name. That he offers to you that very same power. Think about that for a moment. Like, what is the power of the resurrection? What is it? It's the power to do the seemingly impossible. It's the power to do the impossible. It's the power to overcome. It's the power that topples sin and death, our great enemies. And another one of Paul's letters, Romans 7, he grieves all that his attempted law-keeping couldn't do. He says that the more I tried to keep the law, the more I realized just how powerless I was to beat sin within me. I I realized just how much sin lived within me. My efforts to keep the law just exposed this. It didn't do anything to rid me of sin's presence or power in my life. It just showed me more and more how much it was actually there. Essentially, he's saying there was no power in my resume. It just made me feel worse and worse and worse. And then he explodes with this answer in Romans 8, which for the record, I think is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. That what the law couldn't do, he says, God did. 
What the law had no power to do in my life by my keeping it, God did through his son Jesus and his Holy Spirit. I heard a story recently that I was just really moved by and I thought was so beautiful of some women uh, at Baylor University. They were being led on something of a spiritual retreat and the leader had them do this little exercise on, on that passage in Romans. And to help them embrace their freedom from condemnation, uh, she encouraged the women that, hey, Jesus sets us free from shame and just, I want you to embrace that. So just name it. Name whatever your shame is out loud. And so this chorus of women just started naming their deepest sources of shame dishonesty, pornography, gossip, all sorts of other things. And during the meeting, this young woman stepped up to the mic and she said, sisters, I just wanna let you know, dishonesty no longer has power over you. Pornography no longer has power over you. Gossip no longer has power over you. What he did no longer has power over you. What they said no longer has power over you because the power of the risen Christ is now alive and at work in you. And family, what I want us to know this morning is the same is true of you if you are in Jesus, that the power of his resurrection is for you today, today. And this matters because some of us have no problem trusting that Jesus frees us from the guilt of our sin, but we struggle mightily to trust that he delivers us from its power. We struggle mightily to believe that. Some of us believe that the things we've done, where we're from, our struggles, our pains, our sins are too big to be healed from, that they will always be our scars, that they will always be our burdens. They will always be with us and we will never be free. And certainly some of, some of us may struggle till our dying day. But even then, the promise of the resurrection is that freedom is coming. That freedom is coming for you. The power of the resurrection guarantees it. And so I just want you to hear me say this morning that God's power is greater than your past. Whatever it may be, whatever you're walking in here this morning with, whatever your baggage is, God's power is greater than that and he can free you from it. God's power is greater than your present struggle. God's power is greater than your addiction, your trial, your pain, whatever it may be. Some of, some of you feel absolutely held captive this morning to your sin, your pain, your trauma, your past, whatever it may be. And it feels like your proverbial tomb you feel buried in it. And the invitation of Jesus is to receive the one who empties tombs, to receive the one who empties tombs because he'll do that for you too. Just as he was raised to life, he will bring life to you. And Paul goes on and finally he says, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He offers us the security of his righteousness. He offers us the power of his resurrection. And he offers us the fellowship of his suffering, which I know off the cuff sounds like, I get Jesus, yes. I get his righteousness, yes. I get to know the power of his resurrection, yes. Share in his suffering, slow down. <laughs> don't, don't wanna go there just yet. Now, listen, 
This has been the theme throughout most of Philippians, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but I just wanna emphasize that the reality is is that there is something special in suffering for the life of the believer. That for the believer, there is something special in suffering. The word for share here is the Greek word koinonia, and it's the same word he uses to talk about his partnership with the Philippians, and it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about the relationships that believers share with one another. It's a highly relational term. And it's like Paul is saying here that in suffering, I may have more relationship with Jesus, that I may relate to him more, that I may know him more and be changed by him more. You see, in suffering, Christianity sets itself markedly apart from every other belief system. With Paul's former behavior-based religion, suffering could have been interpreted as, hey, you haven't been righteous enough for God to bless you and keep you from this. It could have been interpreted as, well, maybe God hasn't kept his end of the bargain, but that is not the case with Jesus. When hardship and difficulty came for Paul, he knew that something strange wasn't happening to him but he was sharing in the same suffering that Christ himself endures, walking the same roads that his God walked, becoming like him in his death. You see, with Christ, there is purpose and there is meaning in all suffering. The tears and blood you shed are shed with him. And the best part is, is that it does not end there. All of it is a pathway to resurrection. The way up is the way down. And no other system of belief brings meaning and purpose and dare I say, even satisfying union with Christ to the way down. If Christianity is true and other religions are not, then suffering in any other worldview is just suffering and then you die. But with Christ, it is a journey with him through the valley and you come out on the mountain together. Paul knows that all of that lies on the other side of suffering, hope on the other side of pain, life on the other side of death, resurrection on the other side of the cross, and that this is something he also offers to us in our own pain as well. And it cannot be gained anywhere else, but in Christ, the worst thing can uniquely become the best thing, even when that worst thing is losing everything. And this is what Jesus offers you. And this is why Jesus is better than everything else. This is why knowing Jesus is the only thing worth putting in our gains column. But there is only one way to get there. There's only one way for us to receive these things. And that's, you gotta be done with your own resume building. You gotta be done with it. You gotta be done with putting your confidence in yourself. You gotta throw that away. You gotta be finished with thinking and believing that anything other than Jesus makes you righteous and worthy and better than anyone else. And you have to trust the full weight of your life on him. You have to sit in the chair. You've got to say, Jesus, you are where it's at, and I am putting it all, I'm putting all my chips in on you. 
And let me just put this out here for some of us. For some of us, it is time for you to get saved. Let me just put it out there. It is time for you to make this movement, this movement from faith in your own work, from faith in what you do and your reputation and your own righteousness to faith in Jesus's work, in Jesus's reputation and his righteousness. That this is not a move you've made yet. And I wanna invite you to it this morning. I wanna invite you to lay everything else down and surrender and trust to him. Say, Jesus, I am not, I am not, sufficient in and of myself, but you are the one that I need to embrace his security and his power and his suffering for you. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion. And if this is you, I just want to invite you to throw your resume away. Just in these next few moments, I want to invite you to throw your resume away, to drop all your scuba on and to trust in Jesus, to receive the security of his righteousness and the power of his resurrection and his fellowship and your suffering and your pain. And I want us to take, I want you to take that meal with us for the first time. And if you're already a believer, I want you to receive this meal with joy. I want you to be reminded of this is the work that Christ has done for you that he bled and he died on your behalf, that his body and blood were broken and shed for you so that you could stop playing the game so that you could stop trusting in yourself and be free because that's what he has to offer us. And that is what we are built on as his people.